welcome back to the Earn It Podcast. Podcast, we have Mr. Um, Robert Morford, who worked as an aeronautical. Um, I'll probably get this wrong. Um, worked for McDonnell Douglas at, for a number of years on F 15s. Um, Mr. Morford, thank you for joining us. You're welcome. Glad to be here. Great. So, can you give us a quick overview of yourself, where you grew up, where you went to school, etc.? Sure. Well, as a boy, I lived on a 20 acre farm that was in southeastern Michigan. Uh, near a small town called Sand Creek, Michigan, with my parents, my older brother, younger brother, and a younger sister. And I attended a one-room schoolhouse. <laughs> yeah, you can believe that. But only until the second grade. Okay. Those were very happy days for me. I, I enjoyed the neighbors, the kids right next door to us. They had a farm, too, and um, we got along great. We had a great time and we could roam the countryside for miles even uh, without fear or, or danger from dawn to dusk. And sometimes we'd be gone all day and my parents didn't know where we were. They didn't care, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> and I got the chance to play Little League baseball just like a lot of other kids did when they were young uh, in Adrian, Michigan, which was just a little, little ways away. And uh, I was very involved. Uh, our church, our family was very involved in our church in Morency, Michigan. And uh, my dad taught school then. Uh, as I entered the second grade, however, my dad got a new job in Addison, Michigan, which was, oh, about an hour away from us. And for a few years, uh, my older brother and I both and my dad commuted. That was an hour each way. So we'd get up in the dark and we'd come back from school in the dark. And I enjoyed it. It was a long drive. But in 1956, we finally moved into Addison and I completed the rest of my schooling days and up to high school and graduated from Addison, Michigan in 1962. So can you tell me um, how did you get interested in aviation in general, and specifically designing planes and spacecraft. Yeah. Well, you know, as a boy, I really wasn't very interested in in aircraft, uh, unless you could count, hang on now, hang on to your seat, unless you could count my brother and I putting together these balsa wood stick bottles of airplanes that were operated with a rubber band wind up, you know, you'd wind up the propeller and the rubber band was attached. And uh, we'd set it off into the air, and they were pretty good. They flew pretty good. But it didn't take long before we got tired of that and decided uh, we'd like to see it catch on fire and crash in the wall of fire. And so <laughs> that, was about, that was about the, the most <laughs> aircraft yep. experience or interest I had for a while. But uh, it just so happened the one in my teenage days – I I read a book, a novel, 
Okay, that's fiction, you know, so mm -hmm. not true, but it was it was exciting. It was about a, a young guy that was an aerospace engineer and he worked for NASA. And he was such a cool guy. I mean, the story, you know, was great. I mean, I was hooked. I said, wow, what an exciting life. And of course, the space race was in full bloom at the time. This was in the early, uh, late 50s, early 60s. Mm -hmm. And we were racing with the Russians to try and uh, get get up, got up with them. So, and in the story, you know, I was just fascinated by how cool all of this experience was. And I didn't know, I had little understanding of the technical parts of it, the, uh, the things that, you know, you should know if you decide to choose that as your career. But I just knew I wanted to be part of that exciting world. Now, I was a kid, okay? You got to give me a little leeway here. So anyway, that's the way it was portrayed in that story. And I, I just knew that I wanted to be an aerospace engineer. So how did you go about um, pursuing that career? Well, as I progressed through my school years, it was kind of a given that I'd go to college. Um, and, you know, my dad was a teacher, for Pete's sakes. I mean, you know, teachers' kids, they all go to college. And, of course, everybody went to college then or tried to. And I figured, yeah, I'm going to go. So um, naturally, I would I picked out the the college prep courses, and they're all math and science and, and the more uh, difficult courses. And it kind of became clear to me uh, more and more that that was, you know, I, I had success in those courses. I, I enjoyed them and I got good grades. I actually did have my dad for a teacher in two of those courses. But I think I would have still gotten a good grade anyway. But I did. I did. And, you know, the aptitude tests that I took, they seemed to indicate that, hey, this, you know, this dream of being an aerospace engineer, that's, that's right in your uh, wing house, so uh, wheelhouse. So, yeah, that was it. That's what I decided. So uh, what college would I attend? <laughs> it was a no-brainer. I mean, the University of Michigan, you know, was like, less than an hour away from our home mm -hmm. and it was and still is actually considered to be one of the best universities in the world you know arguably okay some people from ohio may not think that they're, yep. they're wrong they're, yep. yeah so uh i applied and you know my dad was always a big michigan fan and i think maybe more football than anything else but uh, so he convinced me, yeah, that's where you should go. And I got accepted there. When I went to school, though, I, in, in retrospect, I wish that I had chosen maybe to go to a community college first before I launched right into the big university campus whole thing. Because it seemed like there was a lot more fun to be had there than there was things like studying and classes and all that so mm. i i'm kind of ashamed to admit it but i i wasted a couple of years and didn't really apply myself and didn't realize what a uh, what an opportunity that i was wasting not to really do that so but um about after my sophomore year i think it was or around that time 
there was a girl that I met, and you know her now as Mrs. Morford. Okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that, and we became pretty serious as I went uh, further into school. And so between the last, the first semester of my junior year and the last semester when I was going to graduate, we got married. And so I realized, you know, this is, this is a pretty important thing, your career. And I applied myself and uh, by the grace of God, I was able to become pretty successful in changing my uh, academic rating, if you will, and my grade point average too, which is very important. So that was uh, a, really a turning point in my life. Mm -hmm. So can you describe the process of how you um, got to working in now and what job you were doing when you started out there? Yeah. Um, when I was, uh, when graduation was, was I was getting close to graduation, uh, all the students that were in that category and we were expecting to graduate, uh, they had a they had a placement a job placement program very good one uh, in place at at the university and it it really consisted of a uh, rooms where there was um, bulletins or really interview uh, schedules that you could sign up for on on a bulletin board mm -hmm. and so they they were for all these different companies uh, McDonald was one of them that was included there. And uh, so I signed up for one. And, and for some reason, I, I don't know, I, you know, I just, I read theirs and I was really attracted to it. I mean, they were, they had built the Mercury and Gemini space captains. So they were a pretty prominent contender in, in NASA and in the space uh, activity. So I signed up for them. I signed up for an interview. Um, it went pretty good. Uh, I got a, a call or a letter, I guess it was, back from them just a few days after the interview, and they offered me a job. And uh, I said, well, yeah, I'll take it. Um, <laughs> by that time, I, I was realizing that the the landscape of, of the aircraft industry and aerospace industry was changing because of the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. There was a great emphasis on the military then. And so I realized it was possible that if I went to McDonald or any space or uh, military contractor, defense contractor, uh, it might change a little bit from the space emphasis to the aircraft and military aircraft. And that was the case, in fact, that you know, they they informed me I might have to take a back seat to this little dream I had about aerospace in favor of the military. And I thought, well, you know, it might be more important uh, to get a paycheck than <laughs> just fulfilling that dream. But so so that's what took place. And uh, they offered us a, a little trip down to. St. Louis to talk to them and to meet people down there and and just look the place over and before it was a final commitment and we did and we were both in agreement that this was the that the jobs I I should take and so 
we uh, went back home and prepared to move and start the new job in Missouri. Well, now, when I got there, I was assigned a position in the Wintall complex. Well, this the, the, the complex there had three major tunnel sites. That was a, the first one was a, a low-speed tunnel. The second was a, a transonic uh, tunnel. And the third was a supersonic tunnel or a hotshot tunnel that they call. Of course, that that all uh, says that that's going to be the uh, speed of, of uh, the air flowing through these tunnels. And that, that type of aircraft was going to be tested in each one. Well, I started out in the supersonic tunnel uh, as a data engineer. Now, there was three, uh, in, in all of the, these wind tunnels, there were three groups that were operating. Uh, there was a test engineering group, there was a data engineering group, and then there was a test operations group. And I was assigned a position in the data op, or the data engineering group. Uh, and, and that was in the hotshot tunnel. Uh, even though they, the, uh, the workload in the, in the hotshot tunnel after I started, it wasn't but a short time when that tapered off and I moved back into the transonic tunnel. Now that was the, the tunnel that the F-15 aircraft, which McDonald was in competition for at that time to produce for the military. That was where that testing took place. Now, there were an aerodynamics engineering group that were really the group of engineers that requested the testing be done in the wind tunnels. And so they would request the tests. The test engineers then were responsible to uh, create a test plan and give instructions to the operations group in the tunnel how to conduct the test. The data engineering group, which I was in, we were responsible to, to look at the request from the aerodynamics and what they, they needed to set up the computer input. And it was all, you know, all the data then was computer processed. And then uh, we designed the reports that they would need to, what they would need to supply. We, we made sure that they, we had the output that was correct for that application. So can you talk to me, um, kind of like what was the overall atmosphere, pun not intended, um, like working there, what kind of aircraft were kind of um, buzzing around? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I sure can. Um, the office that we worked in, I suppose, was typical for that era of defense contracting facilities. It was one great big huge room i i i don't know there was probably there was probably the capability to put 200 engineers in this one one single room office wow. no partitions no walls inside walls at all it was just row upon row upon row of desks and we were all seated you know across that row and we could see from one end the back of the room, all the way to the front end of the room, what everybody was doing. I mean, it was like we were in a in a fishbowl or something. <laughs> but anyway, there was one redeeming quality of that room, 
and that was the one wall to the north side of the building was all glass, all windows. And out that window, you could see, you had a, a panoramic view close up of the landing field approach to Lambert Field, which was the, actually that was the commercial airport like Metro is in Detroit mm -hmm. uh, for St. Louis area. All the aircraft landing would come in there. So yeah, uh, I could sit at my desk and look at every airplane that came into that building or that uh, airport. On a given day, I could see a lot of commercial and military aircraft that would come in there. Uh, the commercial aircraft, uh, now, if you this was back in uh, the early uh, seven, uh, yeah, late 60s and early 70s, okay. Uh, Boeing 747s, the jumbo jet, the Douglas uh, DC 10, and the Lockheed L 1011, huge airplanes, and they were so close, <laughs> you know, they could have. I could have reached out and touched them if they hadn't been for the glasses. But anyway, it was fun to sit there, you know. But I had to remember that I was there to work, so I had to be careful. Anyway, there were also a lot of uh, military aircraft. And one in particular was was really kind of neat that I saw was a, a Harrier a fighter jet that was produced by uh, Hawker Sidley, a British company. And I believe that airplane is still fine today operationally. And so, yeah, it is. Yeah, what made that aircraft special was that it could take off vertically or horizontally, just like in the conventional way. Now, you you probably know this. Maybe some of your listeners don't. That's that's what they call a V-stone mm -hmm. aircraft. Vertical and, takeoff and um, vertical takeoff it, short landing. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's, yeah, vertical, uh, vertical takeoff and short takeoff and land. Yeah. So that was an interesting, uh, certainly an interesting airplane to see. The pilot had actually could control the position of those engines with the, just right there from his cockpit. He could rotate them so that they were vertical so that the air, aircraft would lift up vertically when it would reach a certain height that was safe then they would rotate them back horizontally and off he'd go there was the stole aircraft though may have been from my vantage point the most interesting because these these were the short uh landing vehicles in other words they could fly so slow I couldn't understand how they couldn't fall out of the air. They were, I'd look out the window and I'd see one off in the distance and it would be coming ever so slowly. And I'd say, you know, I got to do some work here. So I would, I'd go back to my desk. I'd be working. A few minutes would go by and look again. It's still in the same place. It hasn't gone anywhere. <laughs> but, you know, and I do that a couple of times and finally it would, it would come there, but that was just fascinating to me that they could almost like just hang in the air. Mm -hmm. The only thing bad about the whole situation there was that I could never see him land. Ah. And I never could see him take off. 
because that was out of the view of the, of the windows there. So it was probably a good thing. My boss probably thought it was a good thing because, you know, he I was there to work, not to look at airplanes. So anyway, that was yep. that. too sad, but that's the way it goes sometimes. So you just want to sit there and watch airplanes all day and uh, get, some, get some work done in between. Yeah, it was hard. Yep. So can you talk to me um, kind of what a, um, a typical day would have been like? Yes. Um, let me say this, though, before I say a typical day. In the wind tunnel testing, uh, these these days were very different between when you were preparing for a test and when you were actually, the test was going into the tunnel. They ran the tunnels continuously around the clock, just for efficiency's sake. It was a big costly facility and they wanted it running all the time. So the tests were just one right after the other. But they, and they would go into the tunnel and they would go around the clock. They had three ships. So if, if you were the primary engineer, and by that, I mean that this was your test. You were responsible for your part of the test. Uh, as opposed to a secondary, a secondary engineer, he would be like, you know, your helper. And you'd have two of them. And one of them would work the afternoon shift. And one of them would work the day shift. And you were assigned the evening or the night shift because you were the most knowledgeable. It was your test. You were the primary engineer. But as a, as a, uh, a, a primary engineer, uh, when you were preparing for your test, you would be uh, working in your desk, at your desk, you, or interfacing with your requester, which is an aerodynamic engineer, or uh, the test engineering people to coordinate all the requirements and make sure we had everything that that they were going to need and meet all their requirements. So that that work was was pretty much at your desk, and maybe a few times you'd run over the aerodynamic engineers and and uh, and discuss with them, meet with them, and then come back. But all that time you'd be setting up as a data engineer. Uh, there was a lot of input that you had to set up that would have to be right to get the engineers what they wanted. And then you had to coordinate with the programmers also to make sure that the, the computer processing program, that, that software gave the, the right results. So that was that was the way it was uh, when you were working, uh, preparing your test. So can you talk a little bit um, about stress testing the F-15? And some of the various things that you um, did during that time period? Yeah. Um, when you consider structural testing, you know, when you think about an airplane, what's the most important part of that structure? Granted, all the structure needs to be right and needs to be tested and verified, but it's the wings that are arguably the most critical part of that airplane. I mean, yeah, if you have a failure somewhere in your fuselage, whatever, you can probably be all right and bring it down. But if you lose your wings, eh. yeah. <laughs> then you're in so, trouble. Yeah. So the 
the critical part of structural testing then would be the wings. Now, the wings were attached in, in the way they designed the planes in those days. This is fighter planes. You're talking about F-15 now. Those fighter planes, uh, there was a, a lot of connections of the wing to the fuselage, but there was one main link that if that failed, you were in big trouble. So that had a hole. That, that's your bogey right there. You had to make sure. So when you set up your test, what you're doing is you're trying to put load on that wing to simulate the lift loads that you're going to see, that lift force. Uh, you're trying to put load on that, and then you're trying to see if that link is going to survive that maximum load that you actually you design it for more than that as a safety factor, but to see if that it's if that's going to hold. So. Uh, and when you set that test up, then you have to design and build a fixture that's big enough. Now, this is a full-scale airplane that you tested in the structure lab. It has to be big enough for this airplane to fit inside. And, this and it has to be strong enough to react the loads that you're going to put on that way. You also have to... Uh, design and build a load mechanism or a load system to pull on that wing and to measure that load and to uh, be able to record that load so you know what you've done when that thing fails if you made it to the bogey of your of your link and then you also have to have that instrumentation do it and then you have to have a control uh, station that runs the whole thing and records the whole thing. And so you can imagine there is a lot of people on that test team. It's huge. I, I don't remember exactly, but I, I would guess probably a hundred at least. Wow. Everybody working on just that one test project. Uh, so I had uh, the, the responsibility to design that load system. Now, this wasn't, you know, when I was there, this had been done before. It wasn't like some groundbreaking, earth-shaking new uh, technology. But so there was a lot of uh, the equipment was available. He had hydraulic cylinders that they needed to, to put load into your system. Uh, you had to beams that would be part of the rigging to, to hold the, the load linkages and uh, any, all the instrumentation and all that, you know, that was there, that was available. But I had to make sure that the loads that were applied, and there were many hydraulic cylinders that went into this load uh, system, and the distance of the beams and the length of the beams that all hooked together and it all went together and put the right load into that whole system that would put the load on the wing. Now, the way they physically applied the load to the wing was really fascinating to me because 
it used uh, one inch thick, four inch by four inch neoprene rubber pads with steel back plates on them with a rod coming out of that that it would attach to a steel beam. And so the, there were rows and rows and rows of these pads to uniformly spread out the load over that wing because that's in reality that's the way it would be loaded by the air by the lift force so all of those pads had to be connected to shorter short beams you, you put you know maybe a, a, a row of 10 of those pads all together and link them up to a beam and then extending that row another 10 pads up to another beam, extending that row out, another 10 pads up to that, and so on and so forth until you built this up into the top, the very top, where there was one load connection to that fixture. And then that that was the load that was I just remember you know, it's been 60 years, but I remember <laughs> that I spent a lot of time over a big, huge drawing board where all of those measurements were made and I'd made a drawing that showed them all where they were located so that it all had to be balanced so that each, each pad was putting the same load on the wing, its surface. Yeah, pretty important project. And I was just one small cog in that, that big test team. It was exciting. It was. Yep. It was interesting and I enjoyed it a lot. So can you describe or can you tell me how you go about conducting um, a test on that 15 um, with that um, device to put stress on the wing? Well, I'm not, not quite sure about your question. Okay. Let me... Um, rephrase myself. How would you go about conducting, um, like can you walk me through how a test would be conducted on the F-15 of that particular load um, device? In the Whiffle Tree? Mm -hmm. You're talking about? Mm -hmm. uh, well, it was all done, if you're talking about when you start out and you start to put load on it, mm -hmm. it's all done from that control station. And the, the main Test engineer, and there were there were probably a couple, but in in two, three, and a supervisor that determined it. But they, this was all done uh, in again it was 60 years ago. So I, I don't remember exactly how they did it, but it was all this. It, it was a big control station, mm -hmm. and the uh, it was computerized as everything is, and in a control command station where they would start out and put a load in okay from that one cylinder all of these cylinders then would start applying load you know how a hydraulic cylinder works mm -hmm. yeah it's so and it's a it's a uh, electromechanical device so that when you put a certain signal into it, it starts to compress and shorten and that will put the load on uh, whatever is attached to it. 
and they just kept going, increasing that load. There was a there was a schedule that they went through, and I believe that they uh, went a certain part of the way and stopped, and then did an inspection mm-hmm. and looked at the airplane and actually looked around and to see how it was progressing if there was any places that looked like they had started to fail. But it it just kept, I mean, we apparently were doing it right because the load just kept increasing at those intervals, stop, everything would be okay. And then the, the command test engineer would say, okay, start, continue on the schedule. And they go until that link failed. Mm-hmm. And this, and it was all recorded so they could actually see what was happening in different places on, on the uh, on the wing and the uh, attachment to the fuselage. <clears throat> and uh, I would like to point out that <laughs> the, when it did fail, it was well over the design bogey that it had to reach because uh, mm-hmm. it was a so in that series of tests, were there multiple airplanes that were being used or just one? Just one. Just one. And uh, there was also a dynamic test as well. Now, I wasn't involved with that. I wasn't on that. But it was basically set up the same way, only uh, it had to it pulled both ways. It pulled the wings up and then back down and kind of exercise the wings dynamically. Mm-hmm. That was a little bit more complicated test. Mm-hmm. So can you describe, um, I think you might have already done it, but can you describe the Wiffle Tree invention? Yeah, uh, actually it's it's pretty simple. Uh, if you think of a, a horse-drawn carriage, mm-hmm. and this is, this is where the idea came from, I believe, is that if you had two horses pulling this carriage, okay, the wagon, mm-hmm. there's like four places where that horse is pulling, one on each side of each horse, okay? Mm-hmm. So then those, that uh, linkage would come back to one single bar across. They would all four those links be attached to that one bar and then there would be one linkage coming back from that bar to the carriage so that's where i think the the analogy to the tree came in because if you think of a of a tree it has one trunk and then it spreads out into all the branches so uh that that's really what that's all about. It's it's just taking <coughs> excuse me. It's just taking all of those contact points to that wing and and through a series of attachment of linkages and beams and bars, if you will, coming down to one place. And that's it's kind of like the reverse of what the horse and buggy does for that uh, the wagon where the horse is pulling it. Is that give you kind of an idea of it yeah that makes sense so are there were there any other projects that you worked on there well not really what you'd call projects now there were other tests that were done uh 
and I, I did do some, as a data engineer, I, I um, did some helping of a test, a flight test. Uh, that was where they, they actually tested uh, in flight airplanes, you know, when, when they're uh, being developed, you have these uh, prototypes that are uh, fly. And so they go up and just like, just like, uh, you know, with the automotive sector, you, you build a prototype and then you instrument that prototype <clears throat> to make some load measurements of your structure. And they did that with airplanes too. I mean, <coughs> sorry. Uh, but it was, um, you know, it was just like, uh, I think maybe when somebody, the, the flight test engineering people that uh, needed some help with the, the data processing that as a data engineer, so we helped out sometimes. Um, the other time was, was just, it wasn't really a, uh, any project, but I did uh, have a short stint in the aerodynamic uh, engineering department uh, helping out there and I really don't remember too much about it, except I do remember this. The guy that I was working with told me he was from Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania. I said, Beaver Falls? That's where Joe Namath was from. You know who Joe Namath is? Football player? Yep. He said, yeah, I was his lab partner in high school. Okay, so that huh. stuck in my It's <laughs> cool. You can edit that out. <laughs> nah. Small world. So is there anything, kind of starting to transition here, is there anything that I have not mentioned that you would like to talk about? Oh, no, I don't think so. All right. So can you describe um, kind of how you, I don't want to say, transitioned out of the, um, I don't even know what to call it, aeronautical engineering career? Transition to something else? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was actually pretty interesting because when I was laid off, which I was, because the nature of the defense industry at the time was all the defense contractors, they would, they would build up their workforce, the development workforce, which is engineers mostly and technicians, <clears throat> to, to win a contract. Because they had, there was a lot of work that would go on. So they built up their workforce to win a contract. Well, as soon as the contract was awarded, they awarded that company, or even if it was awarded to somebody else, uh, that meant that the, the, the work at that company, for instance, at McDonald's, now they won the Fifteen contract. So now all the work was now going into producing the aircraft to make their money back that they spent on the development, okay? Is that all the engineers, they, they don't need them as, as many, and uh, they typically would lay them off at the time. I think that changed over the years, and the, the government realized, hey, it's not a good way to treat people, you know, because you <clears throat> work and, and they, they uh, help the company win the contract, and then you get rid of them. So they changed that, and I think it's better today than it was then. <coughs> but when I when I was laid off, there was a friend of mine that had been working there and had been laid off a little bit before, 
and had come to Ford Motor Company to work. And and uh, so I gave him a call and I got laid off. And we've been in St. Louis for six years. And we kind of thought, you know, this is a temporary thing. We really wanted to get back home and come back to Michigan. And so I called him, his name was Rick. I said, hey, uh, do you think there might be any more jobs <laughs> available up there? <laughs> I need one. Uh, and he said, yeah, uh, they're, they're, uh, Ford's really uh, interested in hiring a lot of uh, people that have technical ability and that have worked in the uh, uh, aircraft or aerospace or anything like that because a lot of the the uh, the skills and, and the know-how and expertise apply to <laughs> any technical job uh, really so he said yeah and uh, he put me in touch with the recruiter up there at Ford and I gave him a call and he said yeah come on up and uh, and uh, interview and so I did and uh, they accepted me gave me a job and started there and then for 36 years, I worked there. Wow. So is there, um, trying to, hang on, I have to freeze my question here. Um, so starting to wrap up to the end here, if you had, bear with me here because some people have laughed at this, but uh, the ability to time travel um, and an unlimited amount of money, what three aircraft or even spacecraft would you go back um, or and buy? Well, that's that's uh, actually a pretty interesting question, and uh, I think the first one, and it, it, to me, it would be obvious. It would be the Wright brothers' aircraft, the airplane that they flew mm -hmm. for the first time, if you could get a hold of it. And you know, that's what we're we're doing here, right? We're just saying, what if yep. anything was possible? That would be the one yep. I think. The another one might be the Spruce Goose. Oh, yeah. Did you ever hear of that? Yeah. The Howard Hughes airplane? Yeah, that was yeah, a I've beautiful airplane. That. Yeah. And I don't know. I don't think it was that great an airplane, but uh, it was beautiful. But uh, just the whole uh, aura surrounding Howard Hughes and, you know, what a mystery man he was and, and how that airplane came to be and all of that. I think that would be, uh, that'd be something that, that, you know, if I had a hanger and I had that in it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that, It'd take a pretty large hanger. Yeah. <clears throat> and I guess, I don't know, that the third place could go to, you know, I don't a lot of planes, Spitfire maybe, mm -hmm. uh, or uh, a B-52. Yeah. I've always been fascinated by just how much travel there is on those wings. Yeah. From when static position to in flight position. But mm -hmm. it's just always been a fascinating airplane to me. And I'm not sure there's other ones that uh, maybe, I don't know, maybe a uh, ultralight. You know what that is? Yep. I'm very familiar with ultralights. Yeah. 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 Maybe that one. That'd be fun to, to have and then maybe learn how to fly it. Well, the trick with that is you don't actually have to have a pilot's license to fly it. Um, so long as it's a single person 
think like max of 255 pounds or something like that. Yeah. Well, that could be why there's so many people killed in them too. Yeah. <laughs> That's a joke. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yep. All right. Well, thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. I appreciate it. Well, I'm glad you uh, asked and I hope that it uh, it's useful to you to use. You've been listening to the Internet Podcast. Please leave a rating and review on your favorite podcast app. Subscribe, and we'll be back in 10 days with another great interview. So long.